Uh, as Pastor said, we are going to be in Proverbs in the third chapter. And um, I want to read through it first. Uh, we'll work through it ch- chunk by chunk. But I think uh, a, a preaching professor once told me that you have to read the text and maybe even multiple times because that might be the only good thing that the people hear. So I want to take his advice and, and read through the, cha- the, the text in full and then work back through it. So we're in Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verses 13. We'll go to the end of the chapter in verse 35. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and who acquires understanding. For she is more profitable than silver, and her revenue is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant, and all her paths peaceful. She is a tree of life for those who embrace her, and those who hold her are happy. Verse 19, the Lord founded the earth by wisdom and established the heavens by understanding. And by his knowledge, the watery depths broke open and the clouds dripped with dew. Maintain your competence and discretion, my son. Don't lose sight of them. They will be life for you and adornment for your neck. Then you will go safely on your way and your foot will not stumble. And when you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be pleasant. Don't fear sudden danger or ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from the snare. Verse 27. When it is in your power, don't withhold from the one whom it is due. Don't say to your neighbor, go away, come back later. I'll give it to you tomorrow when it is there with you. Don't plan any harm against your neighbor, for he trusts you. He lives near you. Don't accuse anyone without cause. When he has done you, no harm. Don't envy the violent man or choose any of his ways. For the devious and detestable, they are devious and detestable to the Lord. But he is a friend of the upright. The Lord's, the Lord's curse is on the household of the wicked, and he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks those who mock, but gives grace to the humble. The wise will inherit honor, but he upholds, or but he holds, he holds up fools for dishonor. Oftentimes in my work, I end up traveling a good bit. I'm a fan of Delta Airlines, which is a good thing, but a disappointing thing because Sully Sullenberger will never be in a cockpit of a plane that I'm flying in. I see some of you guys who know who Sully Sullenberger is. Sully Sullenberger is the captain who landed a plane on the Hudson River near Midtown Manhattan. I was in Amsterdam when this happened, and someone said, hey, there's a man who landed the plane on the Hudson. And my first question was, well, why didn't he land it at the airport? (laughs) He had Newark Airport seven miles away. He had LaGuardia seven miles to the other direction. But as they explained to me what happened, it struck me that this guy is not a fool. He's a hero. At January 15th, 3.27 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, this plane took off from the airport, and on its initial descent, or ascent, it was struck by a flock of Canadian geese. Those aren't pigeons, these are big birds. Enough to render this jet into a glider. And so at this moment, literally 155 lives 
were hanging in the balance. Sully Sullenberger had no time to consult the manual. He had no time to phone a friend, as we're prone and fond of saying these days. He had to make a decision, and literally life and death was hanging in the balance. So for us today, life and death, physical life and death, are not always hanging in the balance with our every decision, but there's no doubt that spiritual life and death are hanging in the balance. Relational life and death are always hanging in the balance. You see, so Sully Sullenberger, he took time beforehand to understand what it means to fly an aircraft. He studied, he did the rudimentary things, he understood it like the back of his hand. So we too, as believers, when we are at the crossroads of a decision, which is at the crossroads of wisdom and folly, we too have a choice to make. And if we don't understand the word of the Lord, if we don't understand the scripture itself, then we might be prone to make a foolish decision. And let us be clear, scripture is very, very clear that the way of wisdom leads to life and the way of folly leads to death. So today, it's important for us to understand what it means to be wise. In a world where we live and make so many decisions in areas where scripture doesn't speak explicitly, it gives us a number of principles to understand what to do and how to go about living. As I was developing this, this uh, study today, uh, I sort of came up with the definition of wisdom. And I want to share it with you guys and maybe even prove why I think this is a good one. So this is it. Wisdom is a fitting response to a given circumstance in light of God's mission. Wisdom is a fitting response to a given circumstance in light of God's mission. So before we move forward too far, I want to clarify what the mission of God actually is. And by the mission of God, I mean it's God's quest to redeem all of the brokenness of the world to himself, as we see it in the story of Scripture. And so the story of Scripture is one that we're all too familiar with that we often take for granted. So I think it'd be helpful for us to just march through what we're trying to embody as we come upon these circumstances. Because we know the story begins in Genesis, where God created everything to be good, giving Adam and Eve all they needed relationally, both with each other and with him, and all their physical uh, needs were met in the garden. But because God is a loving God, he's a gentleman and not a tyrant, he gave them the ability to choose to follow his ways, or choose to try to provide for themselves what God has provided for them, indicated by eating of this tree from the tree of knowledge. And we know that the story continues that Adam and Eve chose to eat this fruit, and by doing so, the harmony that characterized all of creation was fractured. But just like any story, there's a conflict in the biblical story, this fall is the conflict. It's rebellion from God is the conflict. We know that there's a resolution as well. The entirety of the Old Testament is marching us towards who the Christ is. There are several promises made and kept. One of the primary promises is that there will be a son of David who is Christ, who will make atonement for all of sin. And we begin reading about this in Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so even then, we begin to see the story unfold that culminates in the Christ. 
whose death and ultimately his resurrection would give us freedom from the brokenness and the bondage of sin. And we look forward to a day when uh, a friend of mine calls it the land of no more. The land of no more pain and struggle and strife because the rule of God that characterized the garden will be there in full. So as Christians, we live in between this time where Jesus has come and he will come and we are like signposts or foretastes or precursors of the kingdom in this time where our world groans for redemption. And so as those who are followers of Christ, we have to enter into these places where the world is groaning and give them hope. See, our world is groaning and its groans are evident. We see it in the brokenness in relationships. We see this in all sorts of abuse. We see this in just the society, how it seems that people just can't get along. So the groaning is immense. And you guys in your own lives and looking in the lives of your friends and in your neighbors and your family, you can see the groanings of the world. You guys with me on that? So as believers, as the redeemed in Christ, we respond to the world around us in light of God's restorative mission. We're his restorative agents into all of creation. And in these moments, it's when Lady Wisdom and Madame Folly cry out to us. And by the way, Madame Folly is really just a jazzed up, attractive looking version of the adversary who's prowling around like a lion trying to kill and destroy us. So my prayer is for us that when we respond to any of these scenarios in which we find ourselves on a daily basis, that we would have a fitting response to every given circumstance in light of the restorative mission of God. So that's sort of an overview of Scripture. Now let's look into Proverbs. In Proverbs, Proverbs is in the Old Testament. It's in the wisdom literature. And unlike the prophets that are giving corporate wisdom, Proverbs gives um, individual wisdom. And then as we look to the first couple of chapters of Proverbs, it doesn't carry a story necessarily like other books in the Bible, but rather it's a father giving wisdom to a son. And after a short introduction in chapter 1, he, in verses one through, or chapters 1 through 9, it consists of a father encouraging his son to acquire wisdom. And that's where we're going to start today in 3, 13 and following. So this first couple of verses, verses 13 through 18, is talking about the value of wisdom. And I'll reread those verses for us. Happy is a man who finds wisdom and who acquires understanding, for she is more profitable than gold. And her revenue is better than gold and silver. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant, and all her paths are peaceful. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her, and those who hold on to her are happy. In verse 13, you see there it says, the text says, find. We have to go and pursue wisdom. All throughout Scripture, there is this dance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But here, it's clear that we are to proactively pursue wisdom. Our pursuit of wisdom always begins before God himself. The 
Proverbs 1, 7 has become a foundational verse for understanding and unpacking the book of Proverbs and wisdom in general, because it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. And this wisdom begins before the very face of God. I think I find it interesting that wisdom begins at the same place that we began our journey in salvation, before Christ, who we cried out, have mercy on, on me for I am a sinner. So this, this means that this place before Christ, this gospel is not just for the person entering into the family of God, but it's the constant place of the believer throughout the entirety of our lives. And so this is one thing we have to do. We have to pursue this wisdom, and it begins before the face of God. So next week is Thanksgiving, and we're going to eat. In December, we have Christmas, and we're going to eat. And come January, we're all going to make ourselves these promises that we're going to, you know, not eat so much in the form of New Year's resolutions that will all break before Martin Luther King Day in the middle of the month. So let let me actually give you a helpful New Year's resolution. Find wisdom. It's so simple, yet so profound. Because constantly, on a daily basis, we're going to stand at the crossroads of wisdom and folly. And it's actually my hope that we would, by seeking wisdom, actually understand when we're at those crossroads. I think far too often we're at the crossroads of wisdom and folly and we don't even know it. So... In small things, like how you respond to your spouse or to your children, or dealing with frustration and anger, we are at the crossroads and we have a decision to make. To big things like, should I take this new job or this promotion, or will it just drive a wedge between you and your family because you're always stressed out and you're always working? Or it's wisdom that alerts you if you find, as a man, a coworker attractive and intelligent, you probably shouldn't be having lunch every day by ourselves. There's these crossroads that we stand at on a daily basis, and we have to understand that these things, these choices that we make that are wise, they are uh, choices that will result in much joy. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's trying to take good things away from you. Wisdom allows you to actually find the good that God has for you. In verses 14 to 16, Solomon underscores the value of wisdom And he's saying that to have wisdom is to be prosperous. In fact, wisdom yields better than money. Well, how is wisdom better? Well, because moth and rust cannot destroy its fruits. Wisdom brings about treasures that cannot be given marketplace values. But what are you talking about, Walter? We're talking about a marriage that is a wonderful picture of Christ in the church. That yields better than gold. Relationships with your kids that are meaningful and lasting. Happy homes. A peace that rests firmly on the giver of wisdom as opposed to your own wit or ability. See, our culture pitches us this vision of the good life in advertisements, in commercials, and on billboards. And we try to pursue these things, which it's only the fleeting stuff of life. But God gives us a vision And it's to find wisdom. And that vision is far more 
powerful than just existing now, but it has eternal ramifications. And even, even looking into verse 16, concerning a long life, there are many of us who know godly people who have unfortunately died young, and ungodly people who have lived long, long lives. We, oft, we too often measure our lives by our earthly lifespans, what Scripture amounts to but a vapor or a piece of withering grass. But our life should be counted in thousands of years because just as wisdom begins before the face of God, it concludes with us in eternity before the face of God. So these things that wisdom is bringing about in us will go into eternity. And so I think that is a wonderful, wonderful truth that we can rest in. The second chunk of verses is verse 19 and 20, and it says this, The Lord founded the earth by wisdom and established the heavens by understanding. By his knowledge, the watery depths broke open and the clouds dripped with dew. In verse 19, it's talking about how God built wisdom into the fabric of creation. And the wise understand how the word work, the world works because they understand the God who made it. And those who do not live wisely are working against the very grain of creation itself. So those who live wisely or live skillfully with God, understanding his creation and people around him, it's just an extremely wonderful way to live, understanding the way in which God created the world. And moving on to verse 20, it says, By his knowledge, the depths were broken open. This alludes to the bursting forth of the flood of Noah in Genesis 7, verse 11, which is a picture of the destructive power of creation if it's not stewarded wisely. You see, this, this, so these two verses go hand in glove, talking about wisdom in the foundation or the fabric of creation, and then talking about if we don't do this, then we are harnessing something or misharnessing something that's very powerful. So there's many illustrations or examples I could give about how this plays itself out. And I'm just going to pick one. In, in our society, we often talk about how people should live together before they are married. Because after all, you have to uh, test drive a car before you buy it. That's the wisdom of the world. But the fact is that you cannot test drive a covenant relationship. You're either in it or you're out of it. And social scientists, they talk about uh, these like relationships in general, and then ones that begin with cohabitation, they're less likely to be long-lasting. Well, why? They were established with a built-in escape hatch. And if you try to pass that up or not, it's still there. And so these, this earthly, contemporary sort of earthly, you know, wisdom leads to difficulty. And the relational bumps and bruises are us running against the grain of God's creation. But for you today who are in the room, if you find yourself in that situation, or if other things are being placed on your heart by the Holy Spirit where you're not living wisely, understand that we serve a God who redeems. We serve a God of grace who can show his glory by making your brokenness whole. So this is a message of, of, of hope here, not one of condemnation. So, creation according to wisdom, because wisdom is in creation itself. 
In verses 21 to 26, it talks about the security of wisdom. It says, maintain your competence and discretion, my son, and don't lose sight of them. They will be life for you and adornment for your neck. Then you will go safely on your way and your foot will not stumble. When you don't lie down, you will not be afraid. And when you lie down, your sleep will be pleasant. Don't fear sudden danger or ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will give you confidence and, you will, and he will keep your foot from the snare. So this sort of reads like an if-then statement. The if is in verses 21 and 22. The then is in verses 23 to 26. It says if in, verses, in these first two verses. And then he refines or he defines that we need to be single-minded on wisdom and discretion or discernment. And then he gives us a wonderful word picture. It's almost like something, having something around your neck, this necklace. It's an adornment to you. Whenever you see, whenever you come in, people see a person of wisdom coming because it's so prominent. I don't know if you guys are like me, but every time I think about this verse, I think about the rapper Flavor Flav with that big clock around his neck. You can't miss it. That's how wisdom should be. They should see as you walk, as you interact with people, you should be someone where it's unmistakable, like the big clock around Flavor Flav's neck, that that's a person of wisdom. Thanks for humoring me in my Flavor Flav reference. <laughs> the then is in verses 23 to 26, and it, it conveys two benefits of wisdom. The first is personal security, and the second is freedom from anxiety. So this first one in verse 23 is a general promise, and it's not an absolute guarantee that the righteous will not have any security issues. But relatively, compared to a foolish person, the life of the wise should be fairly tranquil. If you are a person who runs a business, let's say, and you have just business practices where you're treating your employees well, you have practices where you are not treating them like machines, but treating them like people so that the, everyone can flourish in the company, then your sleep will be sweet. And your dealings with vendors and what have you, you won't worry about somebody coming to your house and seeking revenge. Who do you think sleeps better at night? Chris Garner depicted by Will Smith on The Pursuit of Happiness? Or Joe Pesci played by Danny DeVito on Goodfellas? It's, it's simple. This is what we're talking about. The person who's wise will embody the work ethic and the ethical practices on the workplace like the Proverbs 31 women, which is a, a wonderful example of uh, a hard worker for both men and women alike. So that's not a, a hard and fast promise, but it's just a way in which we understand how the world works. And then verse 24, it says, When you lie down... You will not be afraid. Yes, when you lie down, your sleep will be pleasant or sweet. And this rest comes from a conscience that's unstained. When you, when you are not worried about your wife finding your internet history, your sleep will be sweet. When you're not worried about someone finding that questionable purchase that you placed on the company card, your sleep will be sweet. When you're not worried about the IRS finding out about that thing that you wrote off as a tax write-off, your sleep will be sweet and pleasant. You see, this is, this is a, a wonderful benefit of living wisely. 
In the next, the next couple of verses, it talks about, I just love this, how it really takes us back to um, sudden fear and not worrying about the ruin of the wicked. For the Lord is your confidence and he'll keep your foot from the snare. So this is a, another side of anxiety as well. So not just things that we do bring in negative repercussions, but also just worrying about other people in general, the wicked, as it says. And I love the promise in Matthew 10, 28, when it says, you should not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. So when this evil comes, we shouldn't worry. Why? Because God will accomplish what he sets out to do. And nothing will get in his way. Not ISIS, not the rhetoric of those who don't believe in Christ, not the adversary or anybody themselves will be able to stop what God is going to do. He will see what he is going to do through to completion. Amen? And even if your part in God's plan costs us your very life, the words of Paul to the Philippian believers, it rings true today. It says, Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence, and he will keep your foot from being caught. Beloved, and this is important, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So this next section of verses just sort of continues to work out the practicality of this wisdom that we're establishing in these first uh, several verses. And in verses 27 to, 20 to 30, it talks about the actions of wisdom. It says, when it, when it is in your power, don't withhold good from the one whom it belongs to. Don't say to your neighbor, go away and come back later. I'll give it to you tomorrow when it is there with you. Don't plan any harm against your neighbor, for he trusts you and he lives near you. Don't accuse, don't, uh, don't accuse anyone without cause when he has done you no harm. This is a call to be a great commandment believer. In Matthew 22, Jesus' disciples, they corner him and ask him, which is the greatest of the commandments? And this is his response. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see, this, this is where uh, we, we come into a little bit of dicey water. One thing that evangelicals do very, very well is that we have wonderful spiritual formation practices. We are people of prayer, of personal devotion. We are people who memorize scripture. We fast, we do solitude, we do personal and family worship. But we shouldn't do these things to the neglect of loving our neighbor. Sometimes we get loving our neighbor and thinking carefully about those things all mixed in with political platforms and stuff like that, right? What we have to do is we have to be a people that lives on both axes of our faith, which the great commandment tells us about. Yes, we love the Lord and we continue to do those practices that cultivate a relationship with him, but the outworkings of that must be very clear in our lives. And even if it makes us jump over different things that are important to different groups of people, politically or socially, we have to be the people of the book. And so at the risk of being a little bit unpopular, I, I want to flesh something out 
for us real quick. Rightfully so, evangelicals have been serious about pro-life. We have been serious in putting in good and important work about uh, saving life in the womb. But to be thoroughly pro-life, it means to care about life in the womb and outside of the womb as well. And so that means that we care about things like the ramifications of racial injustice or immigration or foreign policy. We have to figure out what it means to be thoroughly pro-life. Because after all, as a theologian I respect says, he says, justice is what love looks like in public. And so I just want us to just begin to think about those things. Because I think Edmund Burke is correct when he said, the only thing necessary... For the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. So I want us to be a people who are those who love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And the outflow of that pushes us necessarily to make our faith manifest in the areas where everyone who is lost and dying can see that something is going on here. And then maybe that just might give us the opportunity to give an answer for the hope that's within us. And the gospel, gospel can go forward in power. A friend of mine was getting ready to preach a sermon in, uh, out of James. And it was talking about loving the orphan and the widow. And as he was doing his study, he was convicted by his own preaching. And he said that I was somebody who assumed that I was spiritually mature because I was a pastor and he knew the scripture well. He says, but I couldn't name one orphan. And so he sought to remedy that in his life. Consequently, he ended up adopting five kids, but you don't have to do all that. But, you know, we, I think it's important for us to begin to not just understand the word, because to know something and to be able to do something are two different things. And wisdom is being able to apply the truth that you know to real life. I think all too often, and not just in the Christian world, but in our world, in the West in general, we mistake in knowing information with being wise. No, being, being wise is not just knowing that the tomato is a fruit, but not putting it in a fruit salad. Okay, I'll go on to my next point. Verses 31 to 35 talks about the way of the wise. It says this, Do not envy a violent man, or choose any of his ways. For the devious are detestable to the Lord, but he is a friend to the upright. The, Lord, the, Lord, the Lord's curse is upon the household of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks those who mock, but gives grace to the humble, and the wise will inherit honor, but he upholds fools to dishonor. So do not envy the violent man, the text says. Don't, don't envy the person who abuses other people to get ahead. Don't envy their getting ahead because of how or what they did to get there. This is what it's pointing us to. And, and later on it says, uh, in verse 35, in the King James Version, it says, The wise shall inherit glory, but shame will be the legacy of fools. So as we begin to sort of close today, I want to challenge us to think about what your legacy is. Is your legacy one to where your kids and grandkids will say grandma or grandpa, they really helped us understand what wise living was? 
Or will they say that grandma or grandpa greased the skids towards foolish living? What will they say of you? If you are one who your children might be in jeopardy of saying that grandma or grandpa led us down the path to foolishness, that's okay because we have a God who can redeem that. The turn in your life can be evidence that there is a God who is glorious. And so for you today, I'm calling you to begin this path towards wisdom at the foot of the cross, understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there's no way that you can find wisdom outside of being, you know, uh, grafted into Christ himself. So you have to humbly come before Christ, admitting that there's no way that you can be uh, right or good enough to be able to live this life of wisdom yourself. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit will then come inside you will begin to direct you into the, the wonderful riches of the, the Christian faith. The Holy Spirit will illuminate your, your, your understanding of the, what's true and what's good and what's holy. And I know that many uh, conservative Christians in America don't do the Holy Spirit well, but this is one place that we have to do the Holy Spirit well. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who will let you know that you are at the crossroads. This is one of those moments where you have to choose to listen to Lady Wisdom or be seducted by Madam Folly. We also have the people of God to help us as well. This is why the body of Christ, or at least one reason why the body of Christ is so significant, because when we were saved, and if you haven't yet been saved, Lord willing, you will be saved not just as an individual, but into a people of God. And the people of God are those people who know us well, who can encourage us to godliness, who can discourage us from making stupid mistakes that we'll regret for years and years. I love the verse in Proverbs that says, iron sharpens iron, and I often say that it sharpens most acutely across the lines of difference. So when we have people in our lives, in our church families who are older than us, who are younger than us, who are on different places in the socioeconomic strata, who are men, who are women, who are of different races, we will have more voices to better understand more robustly what this life of knowledge and godliness looks like. So it's my prayer today that we take hold of these three resources. The first is the Holy Spirit. The second is the Word of God. And the third is the people of God to help us live wisely, even this week. And so I know this text has um, been a challenge to me. Even as I thought about this past week, I said, you know, there's opportunities that I missed to be wise. And oftentimes, folly is not just making a bad decision, but not making a decision at all. Making a decision to bow out, to abdicate the opportunity to do good. So my hope is today that we would begin to find wisdom And in wisdom, we will find joy. So if you'd be, uh, bow your heads with me, and we'll just have a word of prayer before we head out today.